We are continuing into our study of Ephesians. We're nearing the end. We have today and then next Sunday. Uh, and then two weeks from today, actually, will be our first Sunday in Lent. And we'll begin that journey toward the cross and toward Easter Sunday. If you want to turn to Ephesians 5, we'll be picking up near the end of that chapter, verse 22 today. One of the things that I think is a basic part of who we are as creatures created in the image of God is that we have been created for community. No matter how introverted or extroverted we are in our own personalities, we all are designed to to share our lives with one another in some deep and powerful ways. We, we hear about that within the church, but we also see that evidenced in the popular culture around us. And one of the things that I think demonstrates this desire for deep or meaningful or at least new community are a whole host of television shows dedicated to this idea of, of bringing your life in, in community or in connection with other people. Could, you, could, you could probably list dozens more than I have here, but I can remember from the time I was in grade school, there was a show popular on television, a sitcom called Full House. Any of you guys grow up watching the Full House family? Not a particularly amazing sitcom, but it it followed this idea of a sort of extended family piling back into one household and sharing their lives together, and sort of exploring what that sense of extended family looked like some of the challenges. When I hit my teenage years, there was a show on MTV that was, I think, one of the very first instances of what became reality television. And it was called The Real World. And the tagline on that television show was, when people, uh, sorry, we've picked strangers to live in a house to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. And if you ever saw any of those episodes, you'll know that wasn't always a pretty sight, right? People being themselves in these new forms of community doesn't always work out well. And then eventually that that spawned this whole reality television craze. And one of the, the most popular series, not particularly in the U.S., but worldwide, is a show called Big Brother. And it takes... Uh, a diverse group of people, and it it literally confines them or almost locks them into a house. It puts cameras and microphones in every room so that there really is no privacy. Uh, And then they're they're put through all of these challenges together in order to see who can can be voted through the experience. As I understand, that, that particular show has spread to over 50 different nations. They've filmed like 450 seasons of material across the world. For Big Brother. So we are a culture fascinated by the spectacle of what these new households look like, right? And as they kind of play out on our television screens. But more often than not, we might be reticent to engage in that kind of experiment ourselves. Right? We're, we're used to our sort of comfortable inner circles. But if we 
take the scriptures at their word, if we take this letter of Paul to the Ephesians at its word, then in fact what we are doing right here, right now, as we gather in worship, and even as we scatter later today, is a profound experiment in community. A community more radical, more intimate, more intense than anything you'll see on television. That's because throughout our study of Ephesians, we've been told that in Jesus Christ, we have been made a new people. We've been made into a new family. And together now, we are sharing in a new household with one another, whether we physically live in the same space or not. And throughout this book of Ephesians, Paul has been attempting to describe what that new community, what that new household feels like, what it looks like, how we engage with one another. Talked about our identity in that household, that we are children of love, we're children that now walk in the light with each other. Last week we talked about the way that we now walk in the wisdom of God rather than the foolishness of our former lives. And how we are now a spirit-filled people. And if you'll recall at the end of last week's passage, chapter 5, verse 21. Those verses, Paul says, instead of, of living your former way of lives, instead now be filled with the spirit. And he says that spirit-filled people do a variety of things because they are spirit-filled. The first is that they speak to one another in a different way. They speak hymns and songs and spiritual songs of encouragement. The second is that they praise God in a new way. They praise him from their hearts. There's there's a, a kind of new pathway of worship opened up to us through the Spirit. Thirdly, Spirit filled people, he says, are able to give thanks in every circumstance and for all things, to be deeply grateful. And then finally, in verse 21, he said that spirit-filled people submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And at that point, when we read verse 22, most of us kind of, our inclination is to read quickly on to the next verses, right? And hoping to sort of forget and tune out what we've just heard. Spirit-filled people, all the stuff about praising and and singing songs and being grateful, maybe we resonate with that, but the the command to submit to one another is more challenging. But even if we were tempted to gloss over that verse and move on, Paul won't let us. (laughs) Because what we find is that from verse 21 all the way into the first part of chapter 6, Paul wants to unpack, he wants to explore what this submission to one another looks like. Apparently, this is important to Paul. Apparently, it is is at the center of what it means to be a new people and what it means to be a new household with each other. So today, we're, we're going to look at those verses, this passage on submission... And I I recognize that it's a challenging one for us. It's challenging for us to understand. It's challenging for us to apply. And one of the the reasons that I think it's challenging is that we don't entirely appreciate the form in which it's been given to us. That in fact, Paul is using or is in conversation with a kind of 
of literature or way of speaking that was common in the ancient world. And it was something known as household code. Sorry, I missed a slide there. From the time of Aristotle, for almost 500 years before Paul, this way of, of writing about expectations within a household became common. And these, you could, you could dig through the, the ancient literature of the Greek and Roman world and find all sorts of examples of these, these descriptions about the way relationships work in a household. And in almost every single one of these household codes, you'll find that they address the, the same three sets of relationships. Every household code speaks to the relationship between husbands and wives. It speaks to the relationship between fathers and their children. And it would speak to the relationship between masters and servants. If you lived in this time period, you probably lived in an extended household and you probably fell into one, if not more than one, of these categories. But what's interesting about these codes, if if you saw the way the the Romans or the Greeks used them, even though they're written about every member of the household, these were often almost entirely addressed to one audience, one person in the household. And that was the pater familias. That was the head of the Roman or Greek household. The person who was typically the husband, the father, the master of that household. And these household codes functioned not so much so that that person knew how to behave, but so that that person could tell everyone else in their household how to behave, what to do, what the expectations were. Right? In these household codes, the idea was almost uniformly that power and privilege flowed from the top down, right? in a kind of hierarchical fashion. And these household codes were meant to reinforce that direction of hierarchy. But here in the book of Ephesians, Paul takes that form, takes that that structure of a household code, but he's going to transform it in some radical ways. And that's because in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that we've been joined to a new kind of household. It's not a household where you or I or anyone in this gathered community is the head of the household, but it's a household in which God is now the head. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays to God and he says, God, I, I bow my knee before God from whom every family and heaven and earth now derives its name. The Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Paul is saying, God is now the head of this new household. And as the head of a new household, God has chosen to exercise his authority in some very unorthodox ways. And if we want evidence of that, we have to look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament and throughout Paul's letters... Paul says Jesus Christ is now the most exalted. He's the most glorious name in heaven and on earth in whom all authority has been given. If anyone could be the head of a household, it is Jesus Christ. And yet again and again the scriptures tell us 
that Jesus has chosen to take that place of privilege and to make himself low. Right? Jesus has gone down, Paul says, into the earthly regions. He's gone down into death. He has humbled himself in order to lift the rest of his household up. And so in order to understand our relationships, how we now function as this new family, this new household of God, we have to look to the person of Jesus Christ. And he is going to reorient every one of those relationships. I'm going to jump in here, picking up with verse 22. But as we do that, I want us to think about how Christ is the center of this household. How it's his example that redefines and, and re-illustrates what it is to be in relationship. And what submission itself looks like. Let me pray for us as we get into the text. Jesus, we thank you that we are part of your household. Thank you that it's you who have found and chosen us. And we're, we're thankful for the profoundly gracious kind and patient way you have served and loved us first. Lord, as we read these verses now, may we both understand and be secure in the greatness of your love toward us so that we might also serve and love and yield our will to yours in worship. Lord, I pray as I teach, may the words of my mouth May the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This is Ephesians 5.22. Remember 5.21, the verse before says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul goes on in verse 22 to describe that household code, the parts ...in which that submission plays itself out. Verse 22. Wives, then submit yourselves to your own husbands... ...as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife... ...as Christ is the head of the church, his body... ...of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... ...so also wives should submit to their husbands... ...in everything. Husbands... Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love 
his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. As you can appreciate, there is no shortage of controversy, no shortage of opinions off 11 verses. And some of you, over the past week, it was, it was almost like you were waiting for a prize fight to take place. They said, Dave, what happens next week when you get to this passage? What are you going to say? How are you going to, how are you going to step into that? And it's because these verses challenge us. It's a challenge for us in the 21st century to understand what was happening in a first century household. It's a challenge for us to understand what it is to to worship and yield our lives to the Lord, as Paul describes here. And unfortunately, too often when these passages have been approached, they sort of have gotten boiled down to one basic question. Right? Often the question that is implicitly being asked is, well then, who's in charge here? Right? Who gets to hold the reins of power in this new household? Who gets to make decisions? Right? Who has to submit to who has to submit to who? And I know in our flesh we are all prone to ask that very question. But let me say, if that's even close to the way we approach these verses today, then we have missed everything the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not ask who's in charge. Because in fact, we've already been given the answer to that question. I am not in charge. You are not in charge. The Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted to the highest place, Paul says. He is the head of this household. He is the one who now reigns with all power and with all authority. But he does so graciously. He does so as a servant. And so the question we're meant to be asking as we step into these verses is what does it mean to be like the Lord of this household? What does it mean to imitate him in everything we do, in every relationship we have? And so it's with that framework, it's with that paradigm in mind that Paul now approaches the relationship that wives and husbands have with one another. And he frames it as a mutual obedience and service to an imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he chooses to speak first to wives, verses 22 through 24. It's important for us to recognize that in speaking directly to the wives in this passage, Paul is breaking with the social conventions of his day. We have no other household codes outside of the New Testament that even address another member of the family. They talk about people. They never speak to them. Paul speaks directly to the wives in these households. Not only does he speak to them, he speaks to them first. He gives them pride of place. Because Paul, I think, wants to dignify this relationship. Paul wants them to recognize the value and and the integral role they play in this new household of God. And so Paul says here in these few verses, Wives, as you have submitted yourselves to the Lord, 
Now I am asking you in the same way, be submitted to your husbands. Now again, the the idea of, of service or submission in the ancient household was not uncommon. It was a an expectation throughout the ancient world. Given the laws and the customs of that day, unfortunately, women had had little choice, had little voice within their own households in many cases. But notice that Paul does not frame submission on those terms. He does not speak about submission as some kind of household contract. He doesn't describe it as a kind of duty that one person in the household owes to another That's not what Paul says. Paul says submission is something all of us learn, and we learn it within the context of worship. Submission takes place when we become aware of how greatly we are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are willing to yield our will in preference of his for us. Submission happens when we recognize and we trust wholly in the goodness of the Lord of that household. When we know that Jesus Christ is unquestionably for us. So if if there's one thing I want all of us to walk away from this passage, these passages today, it's this. That submission is something the Lord teaches us in worship. It's something we live out first in our relationship to him. And so Paul goes on to say, as a wife is filled with the Spirit in worship, as she knows the the Lord and Savior who cares for her and loves her in every way, then she may also choose to submit herself to her husband, to live in, in, in kindness and service toward him in the same way that she now lives toward Christ, her Lord. But this is done because Paul will go on to say that husbands are now called to love their wives in precisely the same way Christ has loved the church. Look at verses 25 through 33. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, gave himself away for her. Paul has invited submission of wives to their husbands. Paul is now commanding submission of husbands toward their wives and toward the Lord Jesus Christ through the manner of love. He says, in love, husbands, you are to serve and to give yourself away for your wives. Your submission is also to come from a place of worship. Just as Christ loved you, Now love your wives. Just as Christ gave himself up for you, now give yourself up for your wives. And he he moves on in this passage to speak of this incredible image or metaphor, this incredible reality that when we become partners in marriage, our, our bodies, our lives are joined together. And he points toward Genesis 2, where God says that that in marriage this incredible thing happens. 
right? The, the two shall become one flesh. Two lives, two separate families are joined into one. And what Paul is saying is that if they are now one body, one flesh, then there is no sense of division. There is no sense of, of me and you and, and mine and yours. In Jesus Christ, the marriage relationship is about becoming us. It's about becoming unified. It's about profound and mysterious and sacred union. And so that relationship invites what one writer has called reciprocal self-sacrifice. Right? We give ourselves up. We yield ourselves to one another out of reverence for the Lord. And that takes different forms and shapes within that relationship. Katie and I have been married for almost 12 years now. Our, our 12-year anniversary, anniversary will be on Easter Sunday this year. And in those 12 years, we've had our fair share of disagreements. We've had our fair share of arguments, differences of opinion. But I cannot recollect one of those conversations that was resolved by asking the question, well, who has to submit to who here? Right? That, that is not what brings about what Paul is speaking of. Right? Resolution comes in that relationship when we both can come to the place where we recognize that we are children of God's love. We are children first perfectly loved and served by Him. Christ has raised us up out of death, out of isolation, and he's joined us to one new body. And it's not my body, it's not her body, it is the body of Jesus Christ. And it's in the recognition of that reality that then I can come to a place, I can be secure enough in his love, in his ministry, in his service to me, that then I can willingly choose to prefer the other. I can willingly choose to make myself low. Right? Because we are now members of this one new body. To care for my wife is to care for myself. And for her to care for me is to care for her own well-being. We are joined and bound up in this together. And that, that metaphor, that image of, of a new body, of, of a, an invested sort of union that, that we all now exist for one another under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is one that then filters out into every relationship in the family. So Paul goes on and he addresses children and fathers in verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 6. Verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents then in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Once again, Paul breaks with convention. And just as he addressed wives first and then husbands, so too now he goes directly to the children of this household. 
and he addresses them first, and he dignifies their place. And he says, if you are spirit-filled, if you are in this new household of God, then it's your opportunity to offer your worship to God out of, in, in obedience, in reverence, in honor to your parents. But notice again, the reason Paul locates for this obedience is in the Lord. Paul says their obedience is a feature of their relationship back to a heavenly father who loves them and cares for them. And Paul signals that because he says the command to honor your father and mother in in the Old Testament law is one that's attached to a promise. We're told that as we honor our fathers and mothers, so it may go well with us as children. Obedience, then, is is the means by which children are, are placed in a position to receive the wisdom and care and nurture of their parents that God has placed over them. Right? Obedience to their father and mother, honor toward the father and mother, is intended for their good, Paul says. And so Paul invites children to honor and obey their parents. But what's more surprising than that to the, the first century reader here is the charge that Paul gives to fathers in verse 4. And again, as we move through this code, you'll begin to see that that while submission was expected or obedience was expected from a number of members of the household in the ancient world, that was the cultural custom, the head of the household was sort of above the law most of the time. Most of these household codes were written by men and for men. And that meant that typically they listed off expectations for everybody else's behavior, but they were strangely silent when it came to their own behaviors. That is not the case with Paul. Already he has called out husbands. He's called them to love their wives. Nowhere in the ancient literature is that word love ever used in a household code, except in the New Testament. And now when he comes to the father, he says, if you desire your wife to serve and and, and to love you in your household and your children to obey and honor you, then you must also grow into this posture of of submission and self-sacrifice. You must grow into maturity. And so he commands them as fathers in verse 4 not to exasperate their children, but to grow them up, to nurture them. Anyone who's parented a young child will know the temptation to become impatient, to become frustrated with signs of immaturity or disobedience, right? And it's easy to snap back with harsh words or with a raised voice or with anger in our person. But Paul commands fathers here, do not exasperate, meaning do not enrage your children. Do not speak to them in anger. But instead, he says, bring them up. Literally, the Greek word there means nurture them. Cultivate them. Nourish them. And again, that was an unfamiliar idea in the first century. As theologian Mark Cowan writes, he says, verse 4 means fathering with the gentleness of Christ. 
patiently and lovingly so that the child does not grow up broken and angry. He says, what's communicated in verse 4 is a radical picture of a new masculinity which turned traditional gender roles on their head. The father is called to care for, to be invested in, to speak with tenderness to his children. And so in the household of Jesus Christ, parents and children live for one another. They grow together toward their Lord Jesus Christ. Children growing through obedience. Parents growing through patience and love and tenderness. These are probably the the core features of our households as well. Marriage and children, parent and and child relationships. But in the households of antiquity, the, the household did not stop there. It didn't just include spouses and parents and children, but a key member of many households were the servants and slaves that lived within them. And so Paul now needs to redefine what that relationship looks like in the Lord. Look with me at verses 5 through 9. Paul says, Slaves, then obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether They are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. We recognize that many of the relationships within our households can be difficult, but there was no relationship in the ancient world more broken and and full of greater strife than the one between masters and slaves. And you can imagine why that was the case. Slaves suffered through harsh working conditions. They suffered numerous injustices. They they had an unfathomably, unfathomably difficult life. And this often led to slave revolts in the ancient world. They were a fairly common occurrence. So masters then, in return, not only objectified their servants as property, but they viewed them as less than fully moral, less than fully human, and they viewed them with great suspicion. There was a Roman proverb common in this time, among the wealthy, among those who own servants, that said, every slave we own is an enemy we harbor. Imagine having those kind of relationships within your household. But here in verses 5 through 9, Paul is trying to speak into this deeply broken institution of the ancient world. And here again, he chooses to address 
the quote-unquote lower member of the household first. Again, that's nowhere in the ancient world except in the New Testament. And again, he asks them to obey their masters with sincerity of heart as you would obey. Serving as if you were serving not the Lord and master of your household, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's, Paul is, is using that word subversively. He's using that word He's, the word in Greek for the lordship of Jesus Christ, kurios, is the same word used for the lord of a household, kurios. He's saying, your service is rendered not to this master, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, who made himself a servant for you. He says, serve as though you were serving him. Right? A master who has promised justice to you. A master who has promised that he will reward you for all the good that is done. Whether you are slave or free, this Lord does not see you in those terms. Refuses to make their service, again, a matter of obligation, a matter of duty. Paul reframes even this service. Even in its brokenness as an opportunity for them to respond to their Lord, their true Lord. Again, I, I don't want us to read here the, the New Testament giving an endorsement to slavery. I think what the New Testament communicates into the first century, the seeds of what would eventually become a message of abolition. But Paul is speaking into his context. The real bombshell here comes in verse 9 when Paul turns his attention to the masters. Again, masters who are used to being of reproach outside the law. And he says now to them, to the head of every household, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how powerful, no matter how entitled you feel, Paul says, if you are now in Christ, you are to treat your servants in the same way your Lord does. You are to see them with the eyes of God. So do not even think of using threats or violence in your households. Because Jesus is both their master and yours. And with that, the mind of every first century household owner and servant owner would be directly confronted... Right? As, as Bob Dylan says in his song, right, you've got to serve somebody. And Paul is saying, you too have a master. You have a Lord who is watching and who sees you. And who you need to submit yourself to. This letter to the Ephesians was written maybe early to the middle of Paul's ministry and life. But later when Paul goes to Rome, he's imprisoned there and he writes a letter back to this same region, the letter of Philemon. And Philemon was a typical household, head of household in Asia Minor. He lived in the city of Colossae, about 100 miles from Ephesus. 
And one of Philemon's slaves, a man by the name of Onesimus, had run away from him during some kind of dispute. And he fled from his master and he went all the way to Rome to find Paul. And he stayed with Paul for a period of time. And Paul ministered to him, he cared for him, but eventually he invited uh, uh, Onesimus to go back to Philemon, to return to his family and to his household there. But he sends sends him with this letter. Listen to what Paul says to this head of household in Philemon. As he sends Onesimus back, he says, perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as better than a slave, as a dear brother. Paul is inviting this household to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power even to make the relationship between a servant and the head of his household one of mutual love, mutual growth, mutual submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what's at the core of this whole section of teaching. That's what it means to be a member of this new household. We might not live within the contours of the first century, but every single one of us, regardless of our, our stature, regardless of our station or the role we play, are called to give ourselves, to submit ourselves willingly for the good of the other. And Paul says we learn that in worship. We learn that from the person of Jesus Christ. When we surrender ourselves to him in worship... He teaches us his heart and the way to be humble before one another. If we are full of the Spirit, if we are mutually submitted people in our marriages and in our families and in our households and in our workplaces, then we have the power for for the gospel to transform and reshape those relationships in a new way. Let me challenge you to think upon these verses this week. Maybe with someone and have a conversation about, about what does this look like for you? What does it look like for you to, to learn the act of, of being submitted to Christ so that you might serve one another? You might serve your family. You might serve your neighbor in a profound and new way. Try to find ways to put legs on this passage this week. Let me pray for us as we take up that task. Lord, we recognize that there is a lot here and that our wisdom is limited. Lord, we seek to be transformed by your gospel and by your lordship. Lord, would you make us new in every relationship we have? Would you give us the power to walk as you have walked, to make ourselves low so that others might be lifted up with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.